We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. It is time for the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Welcome yet again in the studio. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. We have a jam-packed episode for you this week. Fresh off an excellent win against Charleston Southern. An upcoming game against Kentucky who gave us quite a game last year. Before we unpack all of our thoughts on the game and the upcoming game, I want to first say thank you to all of our patrons. We got some new patrons this last week that I want to give a few special shout-outs to. Uh, my good friend Brian Levine out of New York City giving us a large dono. Thank you, Brian. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> all right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Ryan Dick upgrading his dono level. Appreciate that, Ryan. And then some new some new donos. Brian Osborne. Larry Medvinsky, and then my friend Hans Lopez. Hans and I go way back to our college days. I think we met playing Halo 1 on the land system. Hans That's, Lopez sounds like a villain from a Bond, Bond movie to he me. Kinda, he kind of played that role in Halo 1 as well. Yeah. He was he was really good with the shotgun up close. Uh, and then outside of that, we want to thank our top supporter, Alexander Leventhal. He is our top dono guy. Thanks so much, Alexander. And if you want to support the show, if you like the show, you can get any of our links on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Blog Talk Radio, on Patreon, and you can give Alan and I a dono. We love that junk. It's, it's awesome. Thanks so much for the support, as always. Uh, Alan, big weekend this past weekend in college football. Big weekend for the Gators. Tell me how it felt to you. James, I loved it. My first weekend back in the swamp after being in Mother Russia last year. Fantastic. Uh you know, I was wondering how many people were going to show up. We were talking on the way to the stadium, just how many people are going to be there, what the crowd was going to be like. I felt like it was pretty good, pretty energetic, despite the fact that we were playing Charleston Southern. How did you feel? It felt good to be back in the swamp. I know you and I both said 
sitting next to each other that this feels nice. A Saturday evening that was kind of cool Yeah. by Gainesville standards. For those of you that weren't at the game, it was actually quite the nice evening. Not a full house. I think they announced like a mid-80s crowd, probably more like 80,000 uh, there. But uh, all in all, the energy in the swamp was was pretty good. It was much better than what we experienced last year. And uh, I thought I thought the fans that were there were excited about seeing what what this new Gator team was going to bring, and they were certainly treated to something pretty good right out of the gate. Yeah, not bad. Uh, decent score we covered, I guess. Right? Yeah, we you covered know, if you, and, if you hit bet the, on the, and hit the over. If you bet on the cover, then there you go. James, let's put this in context because we're playing Charleston Southern. We talked last week about you know what could this mean? What could you really take away? Um, how did you feel we showed up playing a very overmatched opponent? Yeah, a couple of things came to mind when I was answering this question during the game on the text thread that is that is like polarized with some of us who are more logical and some of us, you know who you are, who tend to be just extreme emotional, uh, you know, fans, uh, which is great. If that's you, that's <laughs> that's excellent. But the most important question is the one you just asked, Alan, is what does this mean? Does this matter? And I don't want to take like a large meta step back first and strategically ask you this question. If I told you, as I'm going to tell you at the end of this segment, about all the games that went on in the SEC, school XYZ crushes garbage school XYZ, what do you think? Do you think to yourself, wow, Arkansas must be amazing because under first-year coach, they won by 32, or Missouri's going to win a national title because Drew Locke lit up some opponent, or does it mean relatively nothing? Most of the time, it means nothing. This game does mean something, yes. because what we saw in the game, the style of the game was markedly different than what we've seen under Will Muschamp or under Jim McElwain. The team was organized. They were efficient. Most of what we did made complete and perfect sense. If you look at game theory, you look at play calling, you look at defensive play calling, there was a rhyme and reason just about everything that we did. And you could see, Alan, that the players knew that they had a purpose. They weren't just running routes against air. If they had a route that was a decoy route, they knew it. Uh, And I think that there was a a vast difference in how this particular win felt. Unfortunately for me, that does not mean really anything with regards to our future success against an elite opponent. Because this is much different. But it certainly still meant something. And it meant what we've known all along, I think, Alan. Dan Mullen is a very solid football coach. He knows what he's doing. He's battle-tested. He's got a ton of experience. And you saw that on display. So my biggest takeaway from this game was Dan Mullen did exactly what we thought he would did do, and it was great to see. And secondly, and maybe most importantly, is that we finally, after many, many years of having rather incompetent coaching at Florida, which is hard to believe, have a guy who knows what he's doing. We talked about you know, Dan Mullen being solid and bringing stability the program looked stable last night no one looked like they had no idea what was going on you didn't see a lot of busted plays I'm kind of spoiling some of the questions here later but you know we saw a team that showed up and looked like they were prepared not a lot of penalties decent to very good to sometimes great execution on certain plays not a lot of busted stuff not a lot of chaos not a lot of blown assignments. So from that baseline, that's a huge improvement. Now, as our friend Rick Kingsley said, you can't really win this game. You can only lose it. Now, whether that's you actually lose the game, like Penn State almost did, 
or you play terrible and it's like, man, that's a bad omen moving forward. Now, to put this into context for people who are getting super hyped, under Mac's first game, our first win under the Jim McElwain regime, we won 61-13 to 13 against the illustrious New Mexico State University. Looked good. You know, check some boxes. Obviously, we saw that that didn't come through. It could be on the other side. Two years ago, we won. We beat UMass 24-7. to 7. That didn't feel good either. Okay, so if you're super hyped, think maybe, okay, McElwain's win. If you're if you're like, nah, this doesn't mean anything, think UMass 24-7. So somewhere in the middle of that, I think we can be encouraged. I think we can say we checked the boxes. We did the things we needed to do. We didn't screw this game up. But it doesn't mean now that we're prepared to go out and beat the Georgias and Alabamas. We still have a lot more to prove. This doesn't show us that. But also says doesn't say that we can't do that either. Right. This says what we've been saying the minute Mullen got hired, Alan, which is that Dan Mullen, Urban Meyer, they tend to crush teams that they are better than. It's it's what they do. It's what the offense does. This was not even remotely a surprise to me. I expected this to happen. We talked about the style. We talked about what it would look like. And I think as a note for, for a lot of listeners out there, uh, there's a tendency to think, well, maybe James is pessimistic or maybe James is just against the program or, or whatever the case may be. No, that's not the case. I think, like we said, uh, I expect Dan Mullen to win these games. I expect Dan Mullen to do well here. The question is, how does he do against the elite competition? That's the thing that I'll continue to focus on on this podcast. I think it's some of the value we bring you is, is putting in context what's actually going to happen in the games that matter not the ones we expect him to win at. But that's not to take anything away from Dan Mullen. It's not easy in college football to go out and have a bunch of 18 and 20, 21-year-old kids play like he gets them to play. And he does a phenomenal job with that. And that was on display against Charleston Southern. So that was fantastic. Now, Alan, I know it was your first time in the Swamp since Tom Petty passed. And you got to experience, I think, a special moment. I had forgotten about this when I was standing next to you. But uh, you were kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Then it happened. Tell me about your feelings about being in the stadium during the third quarter uh, you know, won't back down Tom Petty song. Well, I think the end of the third quarter is already my favorite moment in the game, seeing we are, seeing we are the boys. Whether you're up or you're down is usually a great moment. Adding in the Tom Petty stuff was amazing. I mean, I was not sure that we we're still going to do it. I was really glad we did. And I was super impressed by the crowd participation. In it. I mean, everyone's belting out the chorus. It's a great moment. You know, people are turning on their cell phone flashlight. So it's at first I was like, Oh, that's kind of cheesy. And then I got caught up in the moment I did too. It looks really cool. So if you haven't got a chance to come to the swamp since we started doing this, come, it's a really cool moment. I was super thankful to be there. James, what about you? What was the best moment in the game for you? My favorite moment was the end of the first half yes. when the crowd really gets into it and we've kind of given up this big run. And there's this, this weird moment in a game where you've played Maybe the best first half against an overmatched opponent in the past decade. The crowd feels it. People are excited. It's a totally arbitrary field goal that means nothing. But it almost felt like a symbolic changing of the guard because you wanted something and you got it. And since we've started this podcast from day one, we've said that essentially we can't have nice things because anytime we really want something, we don't get it. And yeah. so I kind of I kind of sat there and thought, this is amazing. I really wanted us to block that field goal to put the Greg Nord special teams behind us, to put the disaster of last year behind us. 
and we got it. And we I did think, it. I think there were a lot of fans that just kind of in a weird way felt that. It was like this euphoric, oh my gosh, we got something we wanted. And I thought that was an amazing way to cap off one of like, again, one of the best first halves of football that I have seen in my 18 years of going to games in the Swamp, even though it's against one of the worst opponents we've played. Uh, you know, all in all, it was like therapeutic and it was a That's nice, a it was a nice symbolic it. halftime ending. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there was a big pop in the stadium when we blocked that kick. I think people wanted to maintain the shutout. We didn't ultimately, but felt good to stand up uh, and, you know, for the team to have that moment, for the crowd to have that moment. It was pretty excellent. Okay, let's really dive into this game as much as we can. Uh, you know, you can, you're not able to nitpick a lot of things we will in the future because they're just, we're, Charles and Southern is so overmatched. It doesn't show up on film like what this guy's doing well or not all the time. But before we get into the minutia of the, let's talk about the overall offensive philosophy. Now we said that we were excited to have a regime change. It's not going to be the McElwain offense. You've been a little down on the Mullen offense, but from what we were trying to execute, James, how did you feel? How did you feel we accomplished it? Yeah, the execution was was solid. And if you're a new listener to the show, you'll find out during the course of this year that I personally don't like the spread option offense as run by Urban Meyer and Dan Mullen, uh, primarily because of how it performs in elite games against elite competition. And as a quick recap, Dan Mullen's offense, in theory, attempts to gain three to four yards per play to keep yourself on schedule and then to have ball control, have a 50-50 balance between running and passing, and primarily be a conservative turnover-free offense that puts athletes in space. That is the general philosophy. What you saw on display in the Swamp on Saturday was a little different, but that's also because Dan Mullen will take what the defense gives him. And Charleston Southern came out and decided that, hey, this Florida roster can't pass, has not been able to pass, They've listened to my podcast for the past two years and heard us ranting and raving about how terrible we are and how we don't we don't run pass plays when we should. We run the ball into eight and nine-man fronts. And for a lot of the first half, Charleston Southern was blitzing. They were bringing the eighth man into the box, and we were consistently getting to put four receivers against four defenders or three receivers against four defenders. And we were content to do that all day long, and we were actually making them pay for it. So right off the bat, the first thing about the philosophy is that Dan Mullen is going to do what the defense allows him to do which is excellent. That's the start of good play calling is you have to get the numbers game right. How many guys are they committed to defending the run? And if they are doing that, I need to pass. And so good for us. We finally did something like that. Secondly, you only saw a little bit in this game about players getting into space. There wasn't a whole lot of Urban Meyer style players getting into space. One prime example that sticks out, Allen, is, is Grimes. Grimes' first, first touchdown, our first yeah. touchdown of the season. That's a that's a quintessential Dan Mullen play. You get the walk-on uh, tight end slash fullback coming in motion pre-snap. Ball is snapped. He pulls out on the edge, gets a block against a corner. Very deceptive play, very quick-hitting play, very simple play that goes for a touchdown. Those kind of plays work extremely well against teams that you're better than, and I expect to see a lot more of those plays uh, as the season goes on. That's a staple of a Dan Mullen offense. So philosophically, I think we saw... Everything that Dan Mullen does very well on display in this game, but probably most importantly, Alan, something you and I have been begging for since the Muschamp era is offensive play calling that benefits the quarterback. And we finally saw someone who understands the quarterback they have, and there was play calling that was based on what was best for him truly. 
They were very simple reads. They were very basic. We're going to unpack this in the film study. But that was probably the biggest takeaway I had philosophically. Dan Mullen ran an offense that was best suited for Felipe Franks' arm and his brain. And that's what good quarterback coaches do. That's what good coordinators do. That is something that has been missing entirely from our program. That was probably the most impactful thing for me. I knew it was going to be that way, but to actually get to see it and feel it and watch it is very, very helpful. Agreed. I can't think of a moment during the game where we ran a play and I was like, why? Why did we do that? Not that it was always successful, but there were so many moments. And I guess, you know, the Nussmeyer era was more frustrating upon reflection than actually, you know, maybe I was during it because I was still hopeful we'd pull out of it. But there's so many times, why did we just run the ball? Why did we run that play? Maybe it could have been good. We Maybe we screwed it up. It's hard to know exactly. But I can't think of a moment last night, especially in the first half, where it was like, what was that? That was stupid. You know, It doesn't mean that the play went for 100 yards, but that it made sense. Um, and, you know, I was – whether the defense – it was taking what they were giving us, which I think it was, I also love that he wasn't afraid to let Felipe come out and throw. And giving him the right kind of throws to give him some confidence he's going to need. It doesn't matter if we – you know, loaded up and just grinded them to death on the ground. What does that help us in future weeks? If the defense is going to let you throw, let him throw. Don't you can't hide this guy all season. You can't protect him. So let's see what he can do. We need to know. And Felipe, for the most part, passed the test. All right, you ready to get into the QBs? Oh, I'm so ready. It's my favorite topic in the history of the show. Yes, quarterbacks. Every week for however long we've been doing this podcast, we have talked so much quarterbacks. Let me give you a little more more my thoughts on Felipe before I turn it over to you and get your see if you agree with my assessment that he was much more comfortable this year infinitely so than any time he was out there now one it's from a redshirt so- freshman to a redshirt sophomore but dealing with the rush being decisive on when to run or when not to run i don't know that he always made the absolute best read but it didn't look like he was making terrible reads or missing something that was obviously like open or not open Looked like a totally different guy from that perspective. Often, you know, he's throwing into windows like there's double coverage. You're just heaving it down the field. We didn't do any of that. Or it's like you missed the the clearest read possible. And it seemed like they were leading it into you and you still missed it. And so I was pretty pleased with his performance. What about you? I think this was the best that you could have expected from Frank's. Now, with that being said, does that mean that, that Franks has turned the corner and that Franks is going to lead us to anything significant or, or, hey, James, you're so wrong. Franks actually got the job done. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that Dan Mullen has managed him extremely well. And what you see on film is that he was absolutely more decisive. And that was obvious to anyone in the stadium. However, the majority of his throws still went to his first read. And we've talked about this a lot on this very podcast. It, it's very easy to imagine your quarterback is good at your school when he plays an overmatched opponent because he hits his first read. It's far more unlikely to hit your first read against top-level competition. So the times he had a chance to make two reads, he wasn't always successful, but there was a moment we're going to point out here in a second where he actually did a very nice job of that. And to unpack what's actually happening in this offense for Franks, pre-snap, there's a play call that comes in. Franks' job is to then get to the line of scrimmage and take a look at what the defense is fielding and make a decision on which side of the field he's going to go to. So automatically, he cuts off one half of the field. 
That's not the way that it was last year. That's the way that spread option offenses work. So he goes up and says, okay, I'm going to the left side. I've got a hitch route here to Jefferson. That's the read I like based upon what I'm seeing. He then pulls the ball back. If that hitch route is not to Jefferson and he does not have a check down on that side of the field or a middle route on quote unquote that side of the field, he will then just run. And in the first couple of drives, you saw that two or three times right out of the gate. That's marked improvement, though. Part of good quarterbacking is not turning the ball over. He's not backing up. He's not turning his head around. He kept his eyes downfield. So because of the decisiveness he now has, you see him doing things that other good quarterbacks do. His eyes are always downfield. His pocket presence was much improved. He threw the ball on time. These are things we never saw happen last year. And a lot of that has to do with a very simple play design and actually amazingly sensical pass routes. We talked a lot about McElwain's route tree last year and how we're running routes that made no sense at any given time. It was a master class last night. Um, it's not last night, sorry, Saturday on running routes that made sense and beat defenses. And that's why guys were, in fact, actually wide open. Uh, so you saw a lot of that. And as an example of that, we threw a lot of slants. Mm-hmm. You and I, I have been calling for slants in the whole McElwain era ad nauseum when these teams are off of us. And we were crushing them with slants, especially in the red zone. And Felipe threw it particularly well. Uh, and then I think... I think all in all, my my main narrative on Felipe is we just don't know yet how he's going to actually handle having to make a secondary read, not throwing the ball to his first read against the league competition, not panicking when he gets more pressure and no one is open, there's no big lane to run. None of those things were able to be seen, but Dan Mullen handled Felipe perfectly in this game, including taking him out at halftime when he did, to fill his confidence as high as possible before we head into SEC competition. So I definitely give Felipe's performance an A grade, but I still caveat it by saying, has it told us that Felipe's turned a corner? He's a guy we can trust yet? No, it has not. What it has told us is Dan Mullen is an excellent quarterback coach. He's built a system that is effectively serving Felipe's needs right now. But whether or not that will hold up against better competition remains to be seen. And then lastly, Alan, I think on Franks, he absolutely has improved from what we saw last year. He has improved. But again, there's still a lot of questions that he will have to answer before we can really tell where he is. And I happen to think Dan Mullen knows, judging by his pressers, that that there are some weaknesses that are going to be exploited in Felipe Franks. But he did a wonderful job pumping him full of confidence, pumping the fan base full of confidence, which is exactly what Felipe Franks needs. I feel great for the guy. I'm definitely not rooting against him. I'd love for him to be super successful. I feel good for him right now that he can feel good about himself. He's endured a lot. He's heard a lot of stuff. That was a great night for him in the Swamp on Saturday. Agreed. And one of the things we didn't see is he never faced any real pressure. The offensive line did a nice job pass blocking that, you know, he had time to make his reads and his throws. Or, like you said, if it wasn't there, he usually had a pretty big lane to run through. Now, there's moments last year you would see if he ever had pressure, you know, backpedal and then move to the side, which usually moves you right into the rush. He didn't do that. He stepped forward. And when he ran, he ran decisively. He didn't kind of you know, put around back there, or, you know, fall over like he did a couple times, you know, or more than, more than a couple times last year. So loved it. He, and, you know, I'll say he threw five touchdown passes, which, you know, it's against Charleston Southern. He threw a total of nine last year and he didn't play the whole season, but uh, more than half of what he threw last year, he threw in one half in this game. So that shows at least they're able to scheme around the end zone ways for him to you know take advantage of his skill set. Uh, you know the jump pass was fun. He could have walked that in, you know, but still uh, 
that they they're able to at least seemingly right now take advantage of what he does well. James, I know you have a play in mind. Illustrate maybe what he did well in this game, and you saw some improvement on a yeah, particular play. I think the play that really sticks out to show all of his progression happened in the second quarter. Uh, we've got a we've got a basically a full receiver set. There's two receivers on the left, and he takes the snap, reads left, pump fakes a hitch and go down the sideline to Freddie Swain. Swain actually beats his guy. But he peels off that look and looks right in the middle, like we talked about. And there's a wide-open 12-yard dig or a hitch or a sit route right there in the middle of the field, which he throws a strike for a piece-of-cake pickup. But that was the first time I have ever seen Franks quickly and competently make the read. And there was a read to be made on the hitch-and-go. Recognize that it wasn't a high-percentage throw. Come right to the middle of the field, which is a secondary read, and confidently on time make that pass. Eyes were downfield the whole time. He stayed on base. He had a great platform. And then he took a hit as he threw it. Uh, I think that was an illustration of how far he's come. And, and let, make no mistake about it. If McElwain was still our coach, that play would never have happened this season. That's important to note. We would not have beaten Charleston Southern how we did with our coaching staff from last year. I think that one, though, in a nutshell, when I watched it, I thought, wow, that was actually a really good play and read. And when you're watching it live, it's much harder to notice what actually happened. But as you, as you break down the film and, and you watch what he did, how he read it, his pre-snap read was great. His post-snap execution was perfect. Very, very good play from him. And I think that's something that Mullen will really reward him for uh, this week in the quarterback room is more, more plays like that, uh, more recognition like that. And that's going to lead to success against bigger opponents when a lot of times, Allen, the middle of the field is the best place to go. And uh, I think that was a big throw for Franks to make that was not to his first receiver. Because again, I'd say eight out of 10 of his throws were to his first receivers on Saturday. So that was a great illustration of coming off that guy, hitting an open guy, great play design, great execution. The whole offense was clicking when you, when you see something like that happening. And some of the times his first read is open because our receiver is so much better than their corner and that, you know, it's just going to be an easy throw for him, whether it's a little out to Van Jefferson or whatever it might be. I know live you were noticing Tyree Cleveland potentially open big down the field. Now, when you went back and looked at it, did that confirm what you saw live? Yeah, it definitely did. That's a great point. Cleveland could have had a game where he probably had three touchdowns and more than maybe 150 yards receiving. Uh, there were multiple go patterns where he was just wide open. And we completed a couple of passes underneath. Uh, there was a, I believe there was like a corner route to Swain we completed. But but Cleveland was, was by himself on many of those. And I think the benefit is, you know, last year, Cleveland would have looked back in the huddle and been frustrated because we probably would have thrown an incomplete pass. But we completed just about every pass. We didn't throw deep, but there were two or three where if, if, if Franks makes a more aggressive pre-snap read, and again, they're baby-stepping him, but he says, okay, I've got two-on-two two over there. I've got a superior athlete. I'm going to take a peek at this go route first and then come around to the right side. He's hitting those for touchdowns. Now, rest assured, Mullen will be working with him on getting in those optimal looks. That's part of the process. It was great, though, just to see a guy like Cleveland being wide open against inferior competition because a major question we've had, Alan, for a lot of years is, how are we not wide open against these much weaker opponents? And we were wide open a lot on Saturday. Uh, you know, Franks did not connect really on too many of those deep plays, but they were there. They were available. They're on film. And that's going to be the best teacher for Franks to really recognize, hey, Felipe, when you see this look, you should look here first. We want you to try to score on these kind of plays and these kind of looks. And a guy like Cleveland is, is about as fast as they come on those go routes. We know that. And I think that we'll want to see that get developed down the road. So he was open. He was there. Uh, it's good for film. I'm glad it's there. And I think this should be a really instructive week as we head into Kentucky to see how Felipe can improve 
on some of those pre-snap looks. Yeah, that's definitely next level for him to not just take what is a good read, but what is the best read of this. And sometimes you won't know that someone's wide open because your primary read is to this play and that thing is wide open and the coach would never expect you. Like the guy wasn't supposed to be open, the defense screwed it up and you looked right. But there's some plays in this formation you thought that this guy was going to be the primary. And he's okay. He did. He got five yards, six yards. But if you notice in the way that we're going to scheme this, this guy, there's a big chance he's going to be running wide open down the middle of the field. And you've got to be aware that that's your first place you're going to look. So great job by Felipe. Plenty of room to go. All right. Much ballyhoo and pomp and circumstance surrounding our running backs. A lot of excitement about this particular group. What was your impression of them as a whole? disappointed but it's not it's not fair to them uh we we talked about and who we're going to talk about next the offensive line being really the key to the quarterback and the running backs playing well but there was nothing that they did that was disappointing in and of itself I think they did all that they could do I saw I saw positive hard runs between the tackles uh I didn't see I didn't see anything so you want to see out of your running backs that would be negative Uh, I saw improved blocking which we're going to talk about in a second but all in all, I thought they did what needed to be done, and then I really thought that you know a freshman out of Georgia kind of stole the show on the day uh, in the second half, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But all in all, I, it was probably not, I think, as good as a lot of us expected it to be against Charleston Southern. Yeah, no explosive runs from Scarlett, really. I mean, it didn't look bad, but it didn't look great. Uh, P. Ryan had one really nice run, and then the guy that stood out to me really, I don't know, negatively, it seemed very obvious to us that Malik Davis is not all the way back. Whether that's a physical or a mental thing, he didn't look like the same guy. Maybe just needs some reps out there, take a hit, you know, cut on it hard, and he'll be fine moving forward. It's something to keep an eye on with him because we've got so many talented backs, and he is maybe the best one if he's fully healthy, could be, but didn't look like that yet, I'll say. Um, yeah, running backs looked fine, looked good. I think they will be a strength of this team. But, yeah, a lot of that depends on what you mentioned, our offensive line. I already talked about fairly clean pocket for the quarterbacks, especially in the first half with the starters. Is run blocking a concern for you moving forward? Yeah, it is. I mean, this is surprising in a small circumstance. So we knew that we came into the pod, we came into this season saying we were really good at run blocking last year, relatively speaking. Really good is not really good nationally. Really good compared to how poor we were at pass blocking. Sure. And this first game was entirely the opposite. We were really, really solid in pass blocking, actually, for almost the entire game. And uh, it was the opposite. Our run blocking, I thought, was very, very weak, especially on film. You do not see a lot of guys popping on film. Not a lot of push, not a lot of drive, not big holes, not a lot of stuff to run through. Uh, I thought I was pretty disappointed. When I, you know, Charleston Southern does have a very good defensive line. Let me say that. We mentioned that. They have an SEC caliber player and they're solid. But with that being said, you expect to have one or two or three runs in that game where there's like a a hole you could drive a truck through. And a lot of times, because we were passing so well, we had a good even numbers scenario in the box and we were not getting it done. There was not consistent push from the O line. So I think that John Hevesy will have his work cut out this week. That will be a big source of improvement. And I am concerned. Uh, we, we listed it, Alan, as one of our number one concerns on offense was the offensive line because I said, quote, the success of this team depends on them. And it, I was not encouraged by what I saw on Saturday. That was probably one of the weakest spots for me uh, on the offense and, and one that I think was not an anomaly. I think there's good reason for future concern there. How do you feel about the situation? 
you know, I don't want to like sound the alarm on this because we you know, overall overall looked great, but there's a lot of moments where the hole either wasn't that big or you know the the running back had to do a decent amount of work to get downfield. I think we were either late or missing our guy when we were having a lot of our guards pull. And that's something they're going to be asked to do in this offense frequently. And they can get better on that. Some of it's timing, some of it's technique. Also, maybe our best offensive lineman, Brett Heggie, was not starting. He played well in the second half. If you, you can see him pop a few times. Martez Ivy whiffs on a couple things um, that you really don't want to see him do. And not that these guys are come out and play perfect, but close to it, at least in this type of game. Now there's, like you said, this is a great moment to go, let's look on film. You know, they're being asked to do either very different things or slightly different things in the previous coaching staff. So it's going to be an adjustment. I wasn't expecting, you know, all world level from every single guy, but there has to be improvement there. A, A Mullen offense is predicated on being able to run the ball really effectively. We're not going to come out and run the air raid. And if we can't run the ball, it's going to put us behind the sticks more than we want to be. So, I don't know. Uh, although I will say, I thought the exterior blocking on the perimeter was quite good. I know you picked up on the wide receivers and running backs doing well. Uh, that was a huge, huge change from last year. The wide receivers and the running backs blocked extremely well in this game. Maybe with the exception of the first play of the game. We ran that zone read, run pass option. That was fun. I got a lot of texts about that. Hey, James, you must be watching you play flag football. That's like straight out of your playbook. Uh, but... What's funny about that is Hammond probably has like a 50-yard gain on that if we don't miss the block on the left side. That's a well-designed play. We totally caught them off guard. We had the perfect numbers game, and we just whiffed on the outside block. But really, for the majority of the rest of the game, the blocking was excellent. You can see that that's a staple of an Urban Meyer team. And I keep going to Urban Meyer because Dan, because Dan Mullen learned everything from Urban Meyer. And he's got a few twists that he puts in there himself. But in reality, that is a consistent staple of Urban and that was the first time I've seen that since Urban was here. And that was prominently on display. And secondly, the running backs, I thought Scarlett did a phenomenal job in pass pro. We've maligned all our running backs a lot, especially last year for whiffing. And multiple times he scanned all the way across the formation yeah. where Charleston Southern brought up and picked up the right guy. That was impressive. That was significant. We had whiffed so many times last year with that. So I was really encouraged to see that. And that's why all in all, it was surprising that what the O-line did best was run blocking. They, they didn't do well, you know, and it's their first game under this new scheme. It's a different scheme than how he blocked last year. It's a zone blocking scheme. It's totally different. But you said it best, Alan, the primary, the primary thing Dan Mullen's offenses are predicated upon is running the football. And if you cannot run the football, you are dead. That is the most important thing his offense has to do. It has to do that. And so, yeah, there's a reason for concern. And this, this week will tell us more about where we are with regards to that. Let's continue to talk about the wide receivers. I thought the addition of Jefferson and Grimes was so significant. We were hopeful those guys were going to get eligible and that they would add a certain dimension. I think Jefferson was most, you know, mostly as advertised, ran very crisp routes, has great hands. You know, we haven't had a guy like that in a while. Maybe since like a Dallas Baker type guy where you could depend on him to make a play when you need him to. Trevon Grimes is a little more just an athletic physical guy it showed up on that run they got the ball to him and he was gone and i think when you add those two guys into you know the nice complimentary pieces like a swain a hammond you know hopefully Kadarius tony when he comes back it, it creates a much more complete group how'd you feel about them 
Yeah, amen to that. It's the first time that we have an SEC level wide receiving core. Seriously. And that's what you see. You see guys that are actually able to play at this level. And for a decade, we have not had it. Uh, so I was very excited. The route running, uh, you know, the pass catching, especially after the jitters got out, just everything that went on, we actually have a real receiving core. Amen to that. We deserve one in Florida. We should always have one. We're yes. in the state of Florida. It's crazy we haven't. But we have one. I think it's safe to say that, that you and I feel very confident that this 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 core of receivers will be very productive if the quarterbacks can get them the ball. Uh, there's no reason why they won't. They're going to win a lot of the matchups all year long against anybody's defense. They're that talented. And, and it was phenomenal to see on display the variety of skill sets we have available to us. And Tony, who maybe is our best scat back playmaker on paper wasn't even available in this game uh, and so you know I thought all in all we saw Josh Hammond play well we spread the ball around to a bunch of different receivers uh, which is a staple of an urban and, and a Mullen offense and it was very very encouraging for me to watch an entire wide receiver core play well in the blocking game in the route running game in the mental game mistake-free football put pressure on the defense all game long I'm really looking forward to watching them play this year a much discussed group on the podcast is the tight ends how did you feel like they did in game one? They were poor. We had a we had a false start penalty on Seante Lewis, which goes back to last year. Uh, we had some missed blocking assignments. I think you may have said it best, Alan. We're, we're kind of praising our, our walk-on captain uh, who, who gets in there and plays tight end and gets the first tight end pass, if you will, of the season, in which he, he goes up, he peaks the ball perfectly on that middle route, has like a 25-yard gain on, a, on an excellent ball from Felipe Franks and then just drops it. No disrespect to him, but we're at the University of Florida, and your tight end is a is a walk on, who is awesome because of his leadership and what he does, and he works hard and he blocks well. But that's your that's your tight end. That's like getting the first play of the game. Now I know a lot of this is rewarding your seniors and your leaders. And if you don't have a senior and he's a junior, he's a leader. That's a big thing for Mullen. I get that. I understand that. But at tight end, we are we are behind. We are not SEC level at tight end. It's the total opposite of wide receivers. But we're undersized blocking. We are we are not talented enough pass catching, and that's going to show up all year long. I guess the only bright side to this, Allen, is that Dan Mullen doesn't really use his tight ends if he doesn't have them. At Mississippi State, he barely threw to them, and that's primarily because it's really hard to recruit top level tight ends. There are not very many of them. And you're just not going to get them at Mississippi State. I believe at Florida, it will be his goal to get them. Because uh, you're going to recall how well we did with the ones we had. But for right now, we don't have them. It's a weakness in the team. We highlighted it. And it's, I think it pretty much maintained my opinion of them after this game. What about you? Yeah, you're right. It's hard to find them. That's why we went out and gave a scholarship to Lucas Kroll. Now, you probably saw him. He caught a really nice ball down the sideline from Felipe. One of Felipe's better throws. He's number seven on offense. He's enormous. It doesn't show up on TV as much as live, but he's huge, fairly athletic. I think a former baseball player, you know, late coming back to the game a little bit later. If they can get him up and running, that would be enormous. They've got some young guys, Kenmore Gamble, Kyle Pitts, but the, you know they're not ready. I don't think, uh, but it can be a weapon in this offense if they if he can get them going. But right now they have a long way to go. Okay, so the first half, excellent. Great execution, great design. The second half kind of falls apart on us, a, you know, a little bit. Let's talk about what you saw from the first half to the second half. 
Well, I liked that we came back out with almost all of our starters playing, minus a handful. Obviously, no Franks, a couple other guys. To, to kind of just get you set for, hey, you come out of halftime, you still have to play, you still have to stay up, you still have to stay high. The defense did that. The yeah. defense got taken out, uh, and then you saw some things go on there. On the offensive side, so we're still talking about the offense. It just sort of went away. You had Trask run a touchdown, and we kicked two field goals with a short field. The passing game kind of disappeared. Um, I don't think that was entirely by design. You know, TJ McCoy comes in and snaps one straight over, yeah, straight over uh, Trask's head, and that that's TJ McCoy's problem. I mean, he's just he came out excellent, you know, the year before last, and then fell apart last year, and it, it has not shaken the snap troubles. Uh, so that was a problem. I thought Trask looked looked poor to me. Uh, when I've seen him play in practice, he didn't look like that. There's not a lot of zip on his ball, not a lot of confidence. He doesn't throw off his back foot. He, he he doesn't drive through the throw. A lot of very stale, momentum-based throws that are coming out slow look awkward. Uh, just not a lot of confidence there. And then in fairness to him, he, he didn't have a great blocking situation. No, the, the few plays he was in there. Was concerning. And on film, probably the worst thing he did was just totally blow his own read. It's like second down early on. Uh, he should have handed it off. Probably would have been a big play. But he kept it, and that was his own read for sure. Just read it totally incorrectly, which would make sense. This guy's just learning how to make his own read. He's never done it his whole life, hasn't even played much. But good for him to get some game action. You have to imagine he was really nervous. Uh, you know, he's been a backup his whole life almost. I think there's better days in front of him. I think that was not a promising showing. And if anything, if you watched him play, then you're probably undervaluing him now. I think he's better than what you saw for the limited time he played out there. Uh, but nothing he showed us would make you think at this point in time any differently than Dan Mullen thinks, which is also nice, Alan, because in previous years we said, hey, this backup is definitely better than the starter. And it's what we said coming into this week. Franks is the best that we have. He looked great in this first game, but I, I do trust that Mullen actually knows what he's doing with quarterbacks, which makes my job on this podcast much easier. I don't have to spend 10 minutes ranting and raving about how Franks <laughs> clearly can do all these things better than someone else can. I don't think that's the case. I think all these guys are flawed, and I think Franks really showed a lot of his flaws, as did our second-team offensive line, which was tremendously flawed in that half. One thing I liked about Trask is that he didn't panic when the ball gets snapped over his head. Gets on it calmly, and then gets gets up and you know takes us to a field goal. Um, and then you know he actually looked pretty nice on that touchdown run. He's a big dude. If he turns the corner, he didn't shy away from contact, and he's not a natural runner, but... He showed he's willing to put his head in there and you know make a play. I don't know there's a lot to glean from Kyle Trask. I, he's going to be an important guy for us. Most of the time, a quarterback is not going to play every snap of the season, whether through injury or you need a guy to play in a mop-up because you're not wanting to get your starter hurt. And so he's a guy that we could use. Um, in my notes about freshman Emory Jones, I wrote, Emory Jones, just Wow. And not like, wow, that was exciting, but wow, has he played football before? His first pass, the ball comes flying out of his hand. He fumbles another snap. It looks like he makes the wrong read on his own read a couple of times. Either you know gives it off when he should have kept it or vice versa. That was a rough start for him. I, I think if there was anybody saying... Man, why isn't Emory Jones starting? That's the reason. We said at the beginning he should be starting, but that was a projection on who we thought he could be and what he was and maybe where Felipe was. Clearly, he's not ready. James, uh, I don't know. What do you make of that performance? If he keeps doing that, then he'll be he'll be getting redshirted. I mean, that's what will happen. And maybe that's the best case for him. Only having two quarterbacks is risky. But I think he's a young guy. 
It's his first game under the lights. He gets out there. He has this this fluke thing happen on the throw. And then he, on two zone reads, tries to take it himself, even though he should not, because I think he wants to make up for it. He wants to show the stadium, and he wants to show people he's good. I think I think that's probably what happened. So I'm not going to base a lot on this, but we told you before the show that he has been a project and that he has not progressed. If anything, he has regressed. And I think you saw that. That's not a confident guy out there right now. Uh, and, and he's a long way away from that. There are plenty of other starters who have come in and won jobs. We talked about that last week that are freshmen that fit these systems. Uh, and like we said, Emory Jones was not necessarily a Dan Mullen guy. He was the best available, highly ranked guy that, that could fit into the system at some level. Uh, we already have two quarterbacks that are coming in in the future. I've not watched tape on them yet. Uh, we'll get to that at a future point in the pod. But clearly Dan's trying to figure out who his quarterback may be. And I think, like you said, Alan Jones did not do anything to impress. And if anything, you could argue it's maybe good for Franks at this point in time that he seemingly has no competition coming into this Kentucky game. One week can change everything, but his mental state has never been better. So he's got the best shot possible to put a to put a good foot forward. All right. What matters the most, I think, for us to figure out here, Alan, is we said we wanted to see some things and feel some things and experience some things. Did the offense accomplish what you wanted them to accomplish looking back at this game? Do you feel satisfied? Are you fulfilled? I think I have to say yes, unqualified yes, that they had a particular game plan, they were prepared, and for the most part they accomplished it, especially in the first half. I can't really be anything but encouraged. You know, Like we said, slight concerns about run blocking, but overall that was a big success for them in week one. Yeah, absolutely. This was a master class in prepping a team for a game against an overmatched opponent with a fan base that's been hurting uh, from the play calling to the little jump pass that wasn't needed but was the tip of the cap to the special teams being better to the energy on the sidelines to the energy of the team uh, to the hitch and go that wasn't completed to Dre Massey. You know, we watched all game long. The Charleston Southern defenders were basically jumping every hitch route uh, and we ran hitch and go on them, which is great. It's been a long time since we've done anything that made any sort of sense. And even though we didn't complete it, it was great. So I think all in all, this was the perfect debut. It was everything we thought Mullen was capable of in this kind of game. And I keep continuing to say, well, for me, that doesn't mean anything yet because I did expect this. But even with it being expected, to actually watch it felt great. And I'm sure that's how you're feeling as well. It felt nice to watch competency. So that was great. I think Alan and I both feel excellent about that. On the defensive side of the ball, uh, the philosophy, Alan, just a quick... A quick hitter here. We'll talk more about this after this week because it was such an overmatched opponent that doesn't run a conventional offense. But philosophically, we do run a 3-4. We tend to have our corners playing press coverage, so they're often playing at least man-to-man for some part of the play. One yard off, bump and running the receivers. Uh, And then from there, we're in the nickel a lot. And what that means is a guy like Chauncey Gardner is on the field as opposed to an extra linebacker. Uh, and so we, we run a lot of that as our sort of base defense. It's the first play of the game we ran where we got a sack. We brought him on a blitz. We were rather vanilla, maybe not rather, extremely vanilla yes. against Charleston Southern. Grantham loves to blitz a lot, and a lot of those blitzes are unique. So you certainly don't want to show them, so teams can't prep for them, which is what we didn't do. Uh, with that being said, it was our first look at the new 3-4. I thought, even though the opponent was very overmatched on, I thought it was an extremely successful debut for the defense, minus the one play we had to kind of hustle our corner on late yeah. and they kind of stole that run. Uh, but all in all, I thought that it was it was a smooth transition. They looked like they knew what they were doing out there in the 3-4, which is no small task. Yeah, I I was impressed. You know, they're missing their leader, David Reese, and didn't really seem to miss a beat. Now, you'll see some of the liabilities of 
that show up if he's not playing moving forward. But really was, you know, impressed that they didn't get fooled on some of the tricky stuff that, you know, Charleston Southern can do. They didn't try a lot of it in the first half. Weren't running some of their totally weird stuff. I think because our defensive line was so dominant. That was one of the things I'm going to come take away with is that we have a lot of dudes on that D-line. A lot of dudes. Our third and fourth string guys look legit. I don't know if they're going to be able to make the kind of plays that the first line unit is going to do, but I think we're very deep along the defensive line. Had some turnovers, which is nice to see. Um, that's the lifeblood of any defense is taking the ball away. And if you can do that, they're going to be successful. Um, you want to talk about special teams? Yeah, and as the last as the last one on defense, the D line is an SEC caliber yeah. D line, and you witnessed that through the entire game. I think it's safe to say, Alan, before we get to the weak spots, as a little teaser, there's not another unit on defense that's an SEC caliber defense depth wise, and yeah. we'll get to that. And then that was clearly on display. But the D line was extremely impressive. Yes. That is a that is a a top level D line, top to bottom. It was good to see. Special teams, all turnover, tons of new stuff. No more Greg Nord, thankfully. Yeah. I think it was about as good as you could have hoped for. We gave up one decent kick return, but outside of that, dropped them inside the 20, blocked some field goal, uh, blocked a field goal, blocked an extra point, had a decent punt return, only got one penalty. Uh, Evan McPherson looked good, big leg, good elevation. Uh, I mean, I I would say phenomenal debut from the special Success, days. yeah. And you, I think this is an area that we could continue to see improvement. We did give up one return. I think there are some potential big kick returns in the future with the kind of athletes we can put on the field. That was what's so frustrating. Either the choice of someone, as much as I love Brandon Powell, he was a minus as a kick returner, especially as in punt return. And they just kept running him out there. And we have a ton of guys who could do something. I want to see that become a strength. Mullen focuses on special teams as an Urban Meyer thing. And I, it's great to see McPherson win the job. Because if you have to turn to Jorge Powell – Solid will make those short kicks, but very limited. McPherson could be a weapon. Looked confident out there. Mullen said so afterward. So that's a plus. I mean, it can't be worse than it was last year. And it looked like it, we're on our way to it becoming a strength. All right, let's talk about some overall bright spots. Why don't you give me one here? What was, you know, as you're looking at the game, like this was a really cool thing. Yeah, Dan Mullen was the overall bright spot. I thought, like we said, it was a master class in managing a first game for a wounded fan base. And, and I think it tells us a lot about how in touch he is with where the Florida program is. And that's fantastic. That's what you want out of your coach. He's as competent as we thought. As I look back on this game this week, I think that's my major reflection, is that's a guy who got it, understood it, knows where we are, knows where we're hurting, and did his best to address it with what's currently a flawed roster. But that's all he can do right now. And, and so hats off to him for that. That was one of them. I've got a few more, but I'll let you ping pong in here with some yeah i guess i'll jump in and take our board damian pierce i mean every time he touched the ball he looked explosive not to take away from anything anybody else did but that guy's gonna see the field if he continues to play like that i mean he had a great play on special teams maybe the highlight other than the block kicks of him covering a kick you know just blasted through there and took out the runner but he looked awesome. He looked way better than I was expecting him to be. You know, he's in there in the second half against maybe a more tired team. He's fresh, but you couldn't have asked for a better debut from him. Yeah, that guy was lightning on film. I mean, not just speed wise, just like 
the energy that you could see. Physicality. When you talk about when you talk about coaches saying you want to pop on film, that was the definition of it. I mean, he just levels that guy on special teams, then gets back in on offense and just makes a shifty little move in the hole to dodge a guy, then outruns the guy next to him and stiff arms the next guy, and then carries the ball two more times in a row on that drive. I mean, phenomenal <laughs> debut from him. Uh, obviously a talented guy out of the state of Georgia, which has a lot of talented players. But either way, phenomenal debut, I agree. And then Van Jefferson, my breakout player, which isn't really fair. I think it's well noted he's the best receiver that we have tools-wise. We knew that. We said that. I picked him, whatever. He still debuted that way. I picked Ray Massey two years ago, and he got hurt right away. So it was nice to see Van Jefferson. That catch he had on the slant route when he got pass interfered with in the second quarter was just absolutely top-level stuff. Uh, so that was great to see. Um, that was, you know, that was solid. A couple other ones before I let you pick yours that really showed up on film that maybe were a little more hidden. Uh, Jeremiah Moon played really, really well, really, really well. He's number seven for those of you that haven't paid a lot of attention to him on defense. He's a linebacker. He blocked a field goal. He was in the right spot all over the place. Uh, he, he was excellent at reading the option. I thought he really felt good in his three, four spot. I thought he really, really was a natural there. I think it's going to benefit him down the line. And then also number 17, Zach Carter on the D-line, a guy that I didn't even know anything about. He was fantastic on film, almost always in the right spot, making a lot of the right reads, really, really uh, flashed for me. And so those are two guys that you might not be too familiar with that I thought had a really, really good game. Yeah, just one more thing about Moon. He's a guy, he's pretty tall and rangy, decent speed, and looked like he had some nice bend on the pass rush too. He could be a really versatile piece where you could have him playing a traditional linebacker kind of spot or have him line up and rush the passer. And he could play several of those spots along the linebacker core. It could be a really unique guy on our team if he can maximize that potential he has. We'll have, we'll have to see if he can put that together. Um, there's a couple more guys on defense that you noticed, I know. Um, Miller, Ventral Miller, a guy who was suspended all last year. Him and Houston, I think, both looked okay um, in their first time out there. We're going to need them. And then a nice pick from the freshman, John Huggins, who's in there late in the game. I don't know if he's going to play all year, um, but nice play by him to steal the game. Yeah, and this ties into bringing up Miller and Huggins, ties into something else that I want to kind of, my lasting impression of this game. Dan Mullen played almost everyone on the roster. Almost everyone. And that was planned. And that, you could tell that wasn't just like, let's throw guys in there. That was planned and orchestrated by a, by a general, if you will, who, who knew what he wanted to get out of this game. And that's fantastic coaching. That's fantastic. That roster will be 10 times happier in practice this week because all of them played. All of them have film to watch of themselves and what they can get better with. So excellent, excellent work there. Glad those guys like a John Huggins, a freshman, get that kind of pick in the swamp. Don't underestimate how important it is to a guy like that to be able to get that and how important that is when you're on the recruiting trail, by the way, to let guys know, hey, look, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're playing. Really, really solid. All right, we struggled in a few places, Alan. It's hard in this game to figure out what it was, but I think the most notable one by far was our biggest fear coming into this game is our depth at certain positions. We were watching especially the defense in the second half, and it is scary how thin we are at corner and at safety and even at linebacker at times. But really at corner, it's it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, so after our first two guys, you know them well, Marco Wilson, C.J. Henderson, you know, we had an injury. C.J. Williamson didn't play. Brian Edwards was suspended. So in the second half, when we turned to backups at corner, it was true freshman Trey Dean, who's admittedly looked good, and then a walk-on. Those were our two corners out there. Now, obviously, Charleston Southern wasn't threatening us with the pass. 
But that's scary. That's what we're talking about. If we see any kind of injuries or suspensions or guys going AWOL, we're going to have to do something drastic. I thought Chauncey looked fantastic at the nickel. I think he is made to play that position. Not really a safety, not really a corner. Fantastic there. Like, you know, I think could be a real star like Duke Dawson was for us. But we're going to have to do something. We're, we can't trot out a freshman and a walk-on at corner. We're going to have to, whether it's Chauncey or moving safeties over or taking running backs. So I don't I don't even know. We can't get to that point. If we start having injuries at that position, it's going to be really bad. Yeah, and that, that's a very real possibility. Uh, that certainly could happen. TJ McCoy is is a struggled spot, and that's because right now it's him and then sort of the the upstart surprise, uh, who is probably, I imagine, going to be named the starter coming into I this I would think week. so after that. I would think so. Unknown yet, but I would think so. Uh, and then Kylan Johnson really, I thought, struggled. This was a guy who, who who flashed early on in his career at linebacker. He's number 28. Athletic dude. Athletic, very quick. And in this game, I don't think the 3-4 is comfortable for him yet. Took a lot of bad angles. Had chances to make a lot of big plays when he did not. Um, just wasn't super comfortable. Ran in the wrong gap several times. Missed the quarterback on two wide-open untouched blitzes. Not saying you won't figure it out. I think the guy's got talent, but I think he had a rough game. I think he'll be looking at his film this week thinking he's got a lot of things to improve on. All right, let's look at our breakout players. You already mentioned Van Jefferson. Your pick on defense was Voshan. How did you feel about he did? I thought he played a really good game. I mean, he didn't get a chance to do too much. They didn't blitz him. I think they're going to use him on blitzes a lot more in, in a real scenario, but I thought his tackling was fantastic. And as a side note, I thought, I thought our entire team's tackling was really good. But a Voshan especially, there's several rap tackles he gets that are chaining Crowder-like, where he's sort of just flying at you like a missile and wrapping you up. You're not getting away. But I thought for the rough offseason he had, I thought this is a good game for him. I think he probably feels pretty good about himself. He put a lot of good stuff on the film. I did not see him miss any obvious things, be in the wrong spot in any obvious situation. And I think out of our linebacking core, he hits the hardest, and he's the guy that could be the most impactful alongside a guy like Reese who can help key him into where he needs to go. I don't think Voshan is ever going to be the guy that is cerebrally beating you with his mind. He's a battering ram that you need to employ. <laughs> well, he's a guided missile that needs to be guided. Yes, he needs to be guided. That's a great way to look at it. And, and I thought on Saturday he looked he looked good. All right, my pick for offensive breakout player was Kadarius Tony. Obviously, he was not playing in the game, so I guess TBD on that. And my pick for defense, uh, I guess to me a couple here, Ja'Kai Polite, even though it looks like it should be Ja'Chai I don't often get to hear the broadcast of the game, so I don't always hear the pronunciation. Several people reached out, mentioned that. I don't even know if I'm saying it right now. I hope it's Jakai. If I'm saying it wrong, I'll get it right. You know, send me a little a text, a tweet, whatever. He played pretty well. He didn't play a ton of snaps. He was in the right spot, pretty disciplined for playing kind of a new position. You know, set the edge well, um, especially against an option attack. Wasn't, you know, upfield when he shouldn't have been. So I thought he acquitted himself well. All right. First weekend games. A lot of good ones. A lot of fun stuff. I enjoyed watching every single game on this list for the most part, aside from the ones at the Florida the uh, the Florida game that we couldn't totally see. Let's go just through and give us kind of your, your meta thought on each one. Texas, who we both picked. Tom Herman, year two, coming off the best recruiting class Texas maybe has ever had. A lot of young freshmen on that lineup goes into Maryland, a team that was reeling, that was struggling. DJ Durkin in trouble, not even there. And they lose in a rain-delayed good game, 34-29. Is Tom Herman in trouble here? 
Kinda. We were looking at the Texas message boards during the game, and you know, I guess if you're the type of fan who goes to the message board in game, you're more likely to flip out. But they were kind of flipping out. So Herman tried to, you know, situate this, put it into context. It's not that bad of a loss. It's kind of a bad loss. Even though I think Maryland's probably more talented than people give them credit for. Texas is not where they want to be yet. That's clear. And not that they won't get there, but they have a ways to go. Yeah, that, that's the good narrative. Maryland is better than you think they are, and Texas is overrated. But this is year two. It's a three-year test for a reason. Herman is recruiting at an elite level. It's a wait-and-see approach for me right now. If I'm a Texas fan, I'm still not panicking. I'm going to wait until the end of this year. And by next year, you're going to have to have a 10 or 11 win season. Otherwise, in James's book of scoring coaches, you're, you're not going to be elite. So panic button is like lightly touched right now. That's cause for concern. But I'm going to wait and see what happens. Yeah, it could be you look back at the end of the year and it's like, okay, that was a weird blip. Or it's indicative of things to come. Could be. Could be. All right. Oklahoma, which I know we both enjoyed this immensely, just smashing FAU. Lane Kiffin afterwards said he has a hard time imagining anyone in the country is as good as Oklahoma, which anytime Lane Kiffin can take some sort of veiled shot at Alabama, he does it. I love it. <laughs> but Oklahoma was extremely impressive. You and I are very high on Lincoln Riley. We've been yeah. saying that from the beginning. It's possible that he, in fact, is much better than Bob Stoops is. Long season ahead of him, but that team looks dangerous. That was a big win. I mean, FAU can put some points up, and so Oklahoma's defense showing up was a good sign for them. Yeah, crushes them. Crushes them. Yeah, I mean, well done. My favorite game of the weekend, Will Greer. Struggled in the first half a little bit. Struggled for Will Greer. They yeah. scored on three or five of their possessions, but he missed two obvious touchdowns. Goes on to just drub Tennessee 40-14. to I can't imagine what it's like as a Tennessee fan right now. A lot of them truly were buying into the fact that they were going to come out and win this game, and they were going to be good, and they just got annihilated. So West Virginia is not supposed to be good on defense. Maybe they're better, or maybe Tennessee is real bad on offense. We'll have to see. It's just one data point. Greer looked great, though, for sure. Michigan versus Notre Dame. Didn't get to see any of this one, unfortunately. Two interesting coaches. Brian Kelly's a love-hate amongst Notre Dame fans. They get the W. Harbaugh's star seems to be falling out of the sky with this loss. I mean, he's not going anywhere. He's got such a mega deal unless he just decides to quit. But Michigan's got a tough schedule, and they needed to win this one. Good win for Notre Dame, though. And I can confidently say that Harbaugh has failed a three-year test. So in, in my opinion, he's not an elite coach, nor will he ever be, which yeah. is a big statement, well, uh, that's, but there's no, no proof for but that. But he already I mean. has been an elite coach. He's taken Stanford to really high highs. He was like a one play from winning the Super Bowl. I don't – maybe he's not like peaking right now, but I, I don't think you can say – he might be overrated. And I don't know about your three-year test, but he's done it in the past. He has, but not at the college level. Okay. The elite coach in, in, in my little three-year test, which I which I just so thoroughly enjoy, <laughs> uh, mainly because it's polarizing. You know, you have you have to get to a national title game, you have to have a certain record, and, and Harbaugh has not not gotten there in college. Done a lot of good stuff so far. Michigan, he's struggling. One fun fact about Michigan: they've lost like seventeen straight road games against ranked opponents going back to two thousand and six. And how is that even possible? I, I don't know. even know. That's they play a lot of ranked opponents. But they're also Michigan. You do, mm-hmm. you beat one of them on the road. Not yet. Haven't done it. Louisville 14. <laughs> a lot of trash talks from the Louisville players in this one. Alabama 51. Probably would have been 70 if they wouldn't have let Jalen Hurts play. Yeah, it was not even as close as this. Bama, they roll every time. It's like just when I think maybe they won't beat a team as bad, it's even worse. 
Miami, shocker of the weekend, wow. I think, given what was going into it. Miami, a favorite going into this game, gets crushed by LSU. Ed Orgeron calls three timeouts in the first quarter, proving that he is still, <laughs> in fact, Ed Orgeron. And that does not affect LSU. They go on to drub Miami. They're feeling great about themselves. What's your thought of this one? I don't know what to take away. I mean, do you think it's more that Miami is bad or LSU is good? What's your feeling on either side of that? LSU has more talent than Miami. Miami's not there yet. Special on defense. Correct. I think that showed up. Miami had been winning last year with defense and rather incompetent offensive play. Doesn't Didn't work when they got into a hole against LSU. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that the SEC took it to the ACC again. That was fun. I don't think we can make anything from this game. LSU's numbers are very weird. If you look at their total stats, they scored effectively and they had some turnovers. But I don't know that I look at that and think LSU's back. I look at it and think, that's a weird game. It's a good win for LSU. If I'm a Miami fan, maybe I just recognize my roster is not ready yet. Uh, and I've got maybe a quarterback problem, yeah, which was I a question so. coming into the season. And their backup, I think, was either injured or suspended. Miami's got a long way to go. They were hyped. They were number eight coming to that game, and they got freaking punched in the face. LSU on offense, I, I still want to wait and see. I mean, Joe Burrow is better, way better than what they've had, you know, with the Jordan Jefferson kind of years. They didn't really scare me in this game, but they have a lot of athletes on defense. We'll have to see. Washington in a what has to be just an incredibly frustrating loss. Six times in the red zone. Can't put the ball in the end zone. Uh, losing a heartbreaker 21-16 to Auburn. Thoughts on this one? I think this is a bigger win than it was a bad loss for Washington. I think Washington can still make it to the playoff. That's not a that game looks great on your resume no matter what. Auburn though had to win this game to keep their hope alive and they play a brutal schedule, but this is an important win for them. Virginia Tech, Florida State tonight. Just making mention of that. You're going to probably listen to this after that. So we have no comment on that one. We'll comment on that one next week. We picked week. it last time. I think we both took Vatek or did you take FSU? I took Florida State. Okay, we'll have to see. State. I took yeah. Vatek. I have no idea what to think of that game at all. Like, literally not. We'll, let, we'll watch it tonight. It should be good. SEC Roundup. This is my favorite segment every week. Uh, North, Northwestern State 7, A&M 59. Jimbo Fisher, successful debut. Good job, Jimbo. Yeah, it looks like a Jimbo team. People are excited. We'll find out a lot more about them next week. Don't a g- lot more. Don't give it away. Okay. Coastal Carolina 15, USC 49. Fighting well, must champs. This was close for a while. Like, a while, a while. But they pulled it out. I mean, I guess it's whatever. Yeah, I don't know that it was a rousing debut for, no. say, for a team that's got expectations. Old Miss, on the other hand. Very impressive My boy me. Matt Luke, who I keep trying to get you on the train. And you do. 47, Texas Tech 27. Oh, man. I mean, if you're a Texas Tech fan, and I know a couple, I guess you're ready to pull the plug on the Cliff Kingsbury experiment. But who are you going to hire that's better than him who would stay? Problem is, if you hire guys, get successful, he's going to leave. Cliff might actually stay, so that's why you're sticking it out. Maybe Ole Miss is just better than I'm giving them credit for. If so, that just adds another dangerous team to SEC West, and that's brutal. Yeah, keep an eye on Matt Luke, though. I think what he's doing there is not a coincidence. The the QB is excellent. I'll have to say that. Fantastic. All right, UGA 45, Austin P0. Admittedly, not a good game by UGA. No. Not not anything they're excited about. I think maybe a little bit of a hangover from last year, but no big deal there. Uh, UT Martin 14, Missouri 51. Drew Locke is getting all the rave reviews about just being, a, you know, just a just a gunslinging machine sure, back there. Sure. So, you know. Eastern Illinois 20, Arkansas 55. Good debut from Chad Morris. Yeah, Arkansas, you know, I think the 
the narrative on them is they're going are they going to be able to play enough defense to actually hold up? And it's encouraging for them that they put up some points because that's what he's going to try and do. Stephen F. Austin six. My boy, Joe Moorhead, Mississippi State, 63. A lot of very glowing, positive reactions from the Mississippi State fans after that one. Cool. Middle Tennessee State, 7. This game was close for a while. Vanderbilt, 35. Yeah, this feels like kind of a Vandy result. I mean, I, I guess it's good for them they didn't lose because that was probably at least a possible outcome. So not as lopsided of a score as the rest of these games, but I don't know what to take from Vandy. They're... Until proven otherwise, I guess I'm just going to think of them as below average. That's a, a good thing to think about, Vandy. Uh, Kentucky 35, Central Michigan 20. They were down. Kentucky was 17-7 to at one point in time. Had four turnovers in the first two quarters. Not a very pretty win. Looked pretty ineffective. A lot of questions about Mark Stoops' coaching ability right now. Your thoughts? I don't know. I, Kentucky still feels like they're in an, in an internal process. Like... They're getting better one inch at a time, but they've got to go 7,000 miles. I don't know. I mean, they keep turning the corner, turning the corner, turning the corner. I don't know. They're just in a giant loop. But, I mean, not an impressive showing from them. They were down in this game. All right. What's your biggest overreaction? Maybe not yours, but maybe what you're perceiving to be the biggest overreaction from week one. I'm vacillating between burying Michigan or elevating LSU. I think it's the big reaction because Harbaugh is the star or character is that um, that people are just ready to put them under the pile. This is at Notre Dame. This is a rivalry. This is a tough game. I still see a path forward for them where they could have a great season, but I don't. I don't know. I, I think it's too early to say that their season's in the toilet. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree with both of those thoughts there. I think that the biggest wrong opinion may have been from one Kurt Herbstreit who made a, a bold statement that the Big Ten East was the best division in football. That's Michigan, Ohio State, etc. I think the SEC West may have had a lot to say about who the best division in football was after this week. Yeah, And I know that people are tired of saying the SEC is the best. I understand that analysts are sick of saying they want to be fun and exciting, but the results continue to speak for themselves. Uh, the SEC is just a different animal when it comes to talent in college football. And it doesn't matter how close some of these teams are in other conferences. They are not, in fact, the SEC. There was only one loss for the SEC this weekend, of course, and that was, in fact, Tennessee, uh, which I think no one is sad about. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Uh, We didn't talk about Penn State barely, barely, barely surviving App State. You know, a gutty App State team, but... Penn State was expected to be excellent this year, and I don't know if that's in the cards for them. That's Could it be the Joe Moorhead effect, Alan? Could oh, he mean that much? I don't could know. Could he? We'll see. Some people speculate that. Go look at James Franklin's record pre-Joe Moorhead. I'll let you look it up. I won't spoil it for you. And now wonder what it will be post-Joe that's Moorhead. That's going to be fascinating. I don't really know. We'll find out. James, why don't you thank some more of our patrons? Well, I do love thanking our patrons. Uh, if you like the show, you like the content, please like us on Facebook, and then hop onto Patreon and become a patron like these wonderful people. Uh, Michael Viamontes, or Viramontes, and if I get your names wrong, please like write me some feedback and say, hey, you butchered my Sorry name. Sorry about that. Yeah, my name is Dee Virgilio. I totally understand your pain. Uh, Andrew Rutledge, Stephen Kirkoff, Daniel Johns, Will Kleistein, Spencer Roth, Lon Stafford, James Davis, Rod Lunsford, or Rob Lunsford, uh, is that Pei Chen? 
Tyler Rummery, the first Gator Nation football podcast fan, my buddy, Tyler Rummery, getting some love on the air. I know you love that. And then James M. Maynard Jr. He must be like a lawyer or, or yeah, something very serious. I uh, appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And feedback. We love feedback. Whether you're a supporter on Patreon or whether you're not, or you're a first-time listener, you can reach us via email. You can write us on Facebook. You can hit us up on Twitter. Any medium you like, find a way to contact us. We love to hear your feedback on the show, ideas for segments. Is it too long? Is it too short? Do you want to see more of this? Definitely keep that lifeline open. It allows us to improve this for your overall listening experience. Okay, James, let's turn our attention to the Kentucky Wildcats. We do not have a guest from Kentucky for the millionth straight year because they suck at helping us out with that. And, you know, we're going to see. Well, sometimes we'll have opponent guests, sometimes we won't. We definitely won't have Kentucky because screw them. Okay, so Florida is a 14.5-point favorite. We'll have to talk about, is that high? The over-under is 53. This is old Mark Stoops, year five. He's 27 and 36. Is that good? I don't know. The offensive coordinator, Adrian Grand, year three. D.C., Matt House in year two. Their five-year recruiting ranking. This is interesting, James. 30th for context. We're 13th. So last year, you remember this, we needed a fourth quarter comeback to win 28-27. And so this is kind of interesting. Uh, Mississippi State and Kentucky are the cross-divisional rivals, so they play every year. So Mullen knows Stoops and vice versa. There's not going to be a lot of surprises here. Mullen is currently 4-1 and one against Stoops. And Florida is going for win 32 in a row. We've made a lot of about the streak, you know, around 30-31. Can it continue? I guess it will into infinity. We'll have to see. James, give us a little brief overview and tell us the strengths and weaknesses of Kentucky. Well, they return a bunch of players. So they have seven guys on offense coming back, but they do have a new quarterback. Currently, his name is Terry Wilson. He's a JUCO transfer. That's out currently of his name? What's Dodge. it going to be next? Yeah, currently. It could be something different. Who knows? Okay. It could be the artist formerly known as Terry Wilson. I like it. JUCO guy, former Oregon player. He's backed up by Gunnar Hoke, who is a more highly recruited guy. He's a four-star guy. He's a pocket passer. Terry's an athlete, as you would expect an Oregon guy to be, and Gunnar is a straight passer. They both played in game one, undecided as to who was actually going to be the quarterback, although Terry Wilson is named the starter. I think it's very fluid at this point in time. They have eight returning defensive starters, which sounds great. You're thinking to yourself, Mark Stoops' defense that's solid. They should be good. They actually have a couple of guys who are, in fact, good. They were 97th in total defense last year. 97th. In fact, Mark Stoops' defense have gotten worse every single year he's been there, which is a question mark when his specialty is supposed to be defense. On offense, still run the same old spread option. Uh, 60% or so run, 40% or so pass. We highlighted this last year on the pod. Eddie Grand, the OC, actually likes to pass the ball a lot. But they just have not been able to get the players to do it. And I don't think this year's roster is necessarily the same either, especially when Terry Wilson's playing quarterback. And on defense, they run a 3-4, nothing we haven't seen before. In fact, these two schools, Florida and Kentucky, as well as Mullen and Stoops, are extremely familiar with each other. So this will not be a whole lot of new film study for either school. Strengths of Kentucky, they do have very, very good running backs. They have two of them. Uh, they rushed really, really well last game. That was that was basically the, the reason why they won. Benny Snell Jr., back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons, also very confident in himself. Yes. And then uh, you might remember last year their tight end, C.J. Conrad, who did a considerable amount of work against us yeah, in I do. that game. He's back. 
as are linebacker Josh Allen, very, very solid, uh, Jordan Jones, and then safety Mike Edwards. Those three guys could play at any school in the SEC. They're very, very good. Uh, and they highlight a defense, again, that's veteran-laden, but also I'm listing that as a weakness because they were 97th last year. They had a decent game against Central Michigan. Hard to know what they're going to be like this year. But their primary weakness right now is just lack of overall talent. They just don't have enough players at the SEC level to be competitive with a team like Florida on paper. And then their quarterback play, neither quarterback had taken a college football snap in a game until last week. So they have next to no experience. They did not look good. Uh, and we'll talk about that in the film analysis. But that's the overall overview on Kentucky. Uh, we are going for our 32nd in a row, which would put us in rare company. I think it would make us the third longest streak. We're gunning for Notre Dame's streak over Navy, which was 42 or something like Let's that. Let's do it. So, you know, here we are. We're on the path to that. All right, James, you watched them in what I would deem a mediocre effort against Central Michigan. Tell us what you gleaned from that viewing. Well, Central Michigan, unlike Charleston Southern, is a team that's been to three straight bowl games. They had a lot of turnover on their roster, so they weren't thought as highly of this year. This is really simple. In future film analysis, you'll hear me talk about what I think we're going to see, how we're going to attack somebody, how they will attack us. But the Kentucky game and Kentucky games of years past basically tell you two things. One, they are good on the ground. They returned four offensive line starters, and they had a very good game on the ground against Central Michigan. Again, they had two guys rush for more than 100 yards in that game. That's pretty impressive. Secondly, their passing game was absolutely pitiful. Neither of the quarterbacks looked comfortable back there. Gunner has a better arm, is more consistent, but can't move. Uh, the offensive line at times is prone to giving up edge rushing, which we talked about last year and it happened, and this year could be a good thing for us. So they miss a lot of assignments. Uh, so they had four turnovers in the first half alone. But I will give credit to Kentucky. They beat a perennial bowl team after turning the ball over four times. In the second half, they shut him out. Second half, they shut him out, scored 14 unanswered points, and wound up winning 35 nothing. But I think in reality on film analysis, what it shows is that this team is not in Florida's category with a coach like Dan Mullen because we should be able to get more out of our talent than they are. Mark Stoops, by all accounts, is now a below-average coach. Dan Mullen is an above-average coach. This is a game that feels much more comfortable for me than it has in years past. Uh, and I think on film... That shows Kentucky no longer uh, looks really any different than they have. They just look different than us because we should be competent. And so I think look in this game, Allen, for us to really see what Franks can do against a veteran defense with some talented players that should be able to mess with him, be more confident, more aggressive against his inexperience. And then look for our 3-4 defense against Kentucky's running game. They, they hurt us last year. With the quarterback running significantly on big third down plays, that really, really hurt us. Uh, and then look for our safety play. Uh, Kentucky has not proved to be competent throwing the ball on the field yet, but they will certainly be far more competent than we experienced with Charleston Southern. So those are kind of like the bigger meta narratives as we head into this weekend, things that we'll be looking for uh, in this game, uh, things we'll be thinking about, and we'll talk about in our predictions uh, a few things that we think are going to happen. Before we get to the predictions, let's talk about a few injuries this is going to be like an interesting segment every week because we're going to have to parse what Dan Mullen says and try to give it some maybe like an NFL designation. seems like Sean Davis and Jacob Copeland are going to be out. C.J. McWilliams, I don't know, probable. And then David Reese, I would list him as questionable from what Mullen said, but who knows? He's one of these coaches who believes in being cagey about injuries. So we'll have to see. Uh, again, also, 
no mention of suspensions. There weren't any mentioned until Saturday. So who knows which of those guys are going to be back if there's going to be different suspensions. That'll be a guess a game time kind of decision when they announce that. All right, James, lead us through the predictions. All right, first, we have the spread at 14.5. We have the over-under at 53. And then we're going to go through a couple other things. We talked last week about Felipe Franks' passing yards. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went under 250. It wound up being under 250. He played one half of football. But that was part of what was factoring into it. Uh, We wound up not throwing for a lot of yards in that game in total. But those numbers are all mirage This is now a real opponent in a real SEC game. I'm going to set the line for passing yards at 225 and the yards for rushing at 200. So this is Felipe's passing specifically? This is Felipe specifically. 225 Felipe, 200 yards team rushing. Okay. Over under 14. I mean, a 14 and a half spread, over under 53. Give me what you got. This is interesting because I that 14 number on one hand feels kind of high if I'm just looking at it as a straight bet. I don't know if Florida has shown enough to me as like if I were a better, you know, Las Vegas dude to really take them. But then when you start moving underneath that, I, I don't know if I like it either. So I think that we're going to win this game. Um, I'll give you my final score here in a minute. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to – I would take Kentucky in the points potentially here. Just I'm not sure too many unknowns. I would say the under on 53 as well. If both defenses play to their potential – but at the same time, I think we're going to see a decent showing from Franks. I think we'll see, you said 225. I'll take the slight over and maybe the slight under on rushing. What about you? I like it. I like these numbers too. I was thinking as I was talking to you of which way I wanted to go here. I feel good about the over on the spread. Surprise, surprise. I picked Kentucky to beat us two years ago, for those of you that recall that. Uh, I picked the over on the spread, the under on the over-under. I think that seems like a very high over-under given Kentucky's offensive struggles and our own offensive struggles. Uh, and then 225, I'm going to stay under. I'm going to stay under for that one. Uh, I think field position will have a lot to do with this football game, and I'm not sure we're ready yet to, to throw for that. Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. And then on the rushing, I'm also going to go under. I'm going to go under. So you're expecting a more tepid offense offensive performance than maybe Gator fans are hoping for. I think that Kentucky's defense will improve this year. Although they're not great, I think they will be improved. And I think that we will probably be in the 400-yard range uh, at the top. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go a little more tepid. But I also think that if our defense does the job I think it can do against their offense, this could be a shorter field possession game. So the yards won't be as significant. Uh, hence hence, kind of why I think I can also cover the spread and maybe not have a great offensive performance. So I'll go first with my score. I think that Florida is going to win this game 30-10. to 10. I think it's going to be a convincing 20-point victory. That puts us safely under 53. But I'm going 30-10 to 10 Florida. Okay, I'm going to go 30-17, to 17, and that's just underneath that point spread. It was why that one is making me feel a little nervous. I like us in this game, but there's so many unknowns. Are, we didn't turn the ball over at all. Will we do that? Um, I don't know. This Kentucky team... I'm not ready to just label them a bust yet. They could be better. I think our defensive line, if they create the kind of pressure 
that we want them to and that they're capable of, this could turn into a rout. And it could be like, wow, 14 points was silly. And it should have been like a 30-point spread. If we get into their backfield and are busting up plays and really stopping Benny Snell, I don't know that they have anywhere to turn. And, you know, in previous years, we would have been like, well, offensively, can we do anything? Are we going to win this game 13 to 10? I think we can put up some points. Part of my 30 points was a little bit of a defensive effort here. A few turnovers, interception, a sack fumble. I could see this game playing out in a lot of different ways. I could see us putting up 40 points. I don't think that's going to happen. That would be a major shock for me. But it's possible if we execute the way we did against Charleston Southern, that's out there for us. Um, I'll have to see it to believe it. I'm not pessimistic, but I'm not really optimistic yet. Um, And so, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting game for the Gators. It's at home, which is nice. Otherwise, I would feel a lot more iffy about this. Yeah, and the film is the film is interesting. You know, we talked a lot about last year how my my predictions week to week come based upon what I see on film. And I think on film these two teams are divergent, but the old football saying is that you improve the most between week 1 and week 2. And that's why I say you have to be careful. Kentucky does have a veteran defensive team. Felipe Franks is still, although he's played a lot of games, I think very inexperienced mentally. New system, new coaching staff, new scenario. But I'm going to hang my hat on what I've been saying from the beginning. These are the games that Dan Mullen and Urban Meyer just flat out win. They don't mess around with you. They just beat you. They have better talent. They're better coaches. They win these games. And I'm going to stick with that until proven otherwise. So I feel confident that the Gators will get a spread covering win. So us putting up 30 points, are you expecting a dominant defensive performance? I think so, but that's probably less based upon how dominant I think our defense is and more based upon that Kentucky's offense is very weak. I think they're going to really struggle this year to score points. Well, I'm hoping for a big day for the Gators in the Swamp. Let's look at the national games for this week. Not as big of a slate as last weekend, but some very interesting games. Your boy Joe Moorhead and the Mississippi State Bulldogs are favored by 8.5 at Kansas State. This is a weird game to me. What do you think? Who are you taking? The ageless one, Bill Snyder at home. I've learned that you cannot mess around with Kansas State at home. That's not an easy place to go in. No. Which is why I'm going to show you my belief in Joe Moorhead. I think they cover this spread. I think that Mississippi State is is going to be what Penn State was on offense when he was there, which is a freaking juggernaut. Fitzgerald's coming back. I expect them to win this game by by more than two touchdowns on the road. Uh, and if not, then trouble in Starkville. They should win this game. But this is a hard game. Make no mistake about it. You don't want to play in Kansas State. They're, that's not an easy place to win. I know nothing about this particular Kansas State team. I'm not not followed them in the offseason. I have no idea. This is purely a respect pick for Bill Snyder. Kansas State at home, I'll take the points. But I would not ever put money on this because I have no clue what Mississippi State's going to look like on the road and or what Kansas State could do at home. Okay, next game. UCLA, if you didn't see, lost kind of badly this past weekend. Mm, if you were hoping for a Chip Kelly renaissance, that's going to be further out than maybe you want it to be. But they're going to Oklahoma, and they're Oklahoma's favorite by 29 points. What do you got in this? I don't think that line is high enough. I, yeah, I, I think that's I, I, you know, I highlighted last week the West Virginia game as like the lock betting game, uh, and it was. 
this one feels like a another lock betting game for Oklahoma. UCLA is is down. They're rebuilding. They've actually had a lot of talent the past four years. This is a huge transition year. Uh, they they don't have a quarterback. They are they are in bad shape. And Oklahoma, I think, is feeling real good about themselves. So that seems very dangerous. And and twenty nine is an incredibly high line for two power for two power five for two teams, power yeah. five teams to play each other. I mean, that is like telling you a lot about what's going on, especially when Chip Kelly is the other coach on the other side. So it seems insane to say Oklahoma by more than twenty nine. But I think at this point in time, that's that's a very likely result. I wouldn't touch that betting wise. By the way, it's too big of a line. I think you stay away from that. I'd much prefer to bet on Joe Moorhead. But that <laughs> my gut instinct on that is like, whew, that feels good. Yeah, I'm gonna take Oklahoma here, even giving up those points. UCLA looked real bad and makes me feel like possibly we dodged a bullet not hiring him. I don't know what it would be like with him and our players, and maybe he'd be more excited. He looks like he was just disinterested, which is not a good look And when you're getting blown out. Okay, UGA giving up 10 points to the Fighting Gamecocks, the Fighting Will Muschamps. Who are you picking here? This is my lock of the week. Lock of the Georgia week. Georgia minus 10. Throw a hundo on that. Whoa. And, and you'll be happy about it. South Carolina's a pretender. They're not for real. Georgia is a team okay. stocked full of elite athletes. And look at this self and ask yourself this. If Alabama was playing South Carolina on the road right now, what would the spread be? This South Carolina team? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it would be much more than 10. All right, then I would definitely take Alabama. And that's how I look at it. I think that Georgia is Alabama 2.0, and therefore okay. 10 points does not feel like enough. Uh, I see narratives how it could be. I get it. I understand it. But for now, this is my lock of the week. I think that Georgia covers this uh, without a problem. I don't even know what to hope for. Either Georgia is worse or South Carolina is way better than I thought. Neither of those are very – I guess Georgia being worse is good, but South Carolina being better is not good for us either. I don't know what to make of those weird South Carolina-Georgia games where the result seems to almost be the opposite of what the rest of the season happens. I, I'm i wary of this. I'm very intrigued. I don't know that I'm like 100% on the Kirby bandwagon. I, I think there's a small narrative, small room for narrative where they take a step back this season. And maybe we'll... Muschamp gums up the game enough that 10 points is closed, is on the road. But I'm still going to take Georgia after all that preamble. Clemson, favored by 13, going into Texas A&M. What I teased before, we're going to learn a lot about the Aggies in this week. What do you think? This is a fascinating game. If you paid attention to Clemson's first game, Trevor Lawrence, the all-world, once-in-a-generation, Andrew Luck kind of quarterback, got some snaps. Looked a whole lot better than incumbent starter Kelly Bryant. And if you're Dabo Sweeney, you've got to be thinking to yourself, how the F do I have to still go against Jimbo Fisher? Yeah. The universe is conspiring against me that I still have to play against this guy and I have to go on the road. That's great. It's kind of an amazing storyline. I'm really excited about this game. I don't think that A&M has enough to beat Clemson right now, talent-wise, especially with the defense that Clemson is able to roll out there in a game like this. But 13 points with the seemingly teeming turmoil that lies beneath the surface with what quarterback to go with. You do not have a clear direction there. That allows for mistakes in decision-making. Maybe that feels kind of good. I'm, I kind of feel crazy for saying I'm going to take A&M in the points here because I can see many ways this blows up. But I'm going to take A&M in the points here. I'm going to have to go Clemson. 
even giving up that on the road. That defensive line may be impenetrable, and A&M is transitioning to a new offense. I don't know. It's hard for me to pick Clemson against Clemson in any game until they prove otherwise. They got a lot of firepower on offense, too. Okay, Penn State, who is either real bad or App State is just way better, or maybe Penn State had a bad week. But rough outing. They scrape by against App State. They're giving up 8.5 at Pitt. Pitt is basically a dumpster fire of a football team. They're not good, but Penn State, interesting result against them are last they good? year. Is Penn State good this year? The Vegas odds makers are clearly signaling to you that no, they don't think so, because this should be like an 18-point line for a top 10 Even Penn on State the road. Team. Yes, because Pitt's not any good. But it's not, because clearly everyone is reassessing Penn State's actual skill level. I would not touch this game at all. I have no confidence in James Franklin at Penn State right now, minus my boy Joe Moorhead. I also have no confidence in Pitt. Something tells me that they're probably going to win this game on more than 8.5 points, but probably is not good enough to feel confident with it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, knowing really nothing about Pitt, I'm going to take Penn State and the points, and that, that feels like a horribly uneducated pick. I can't pick Penn State giving up points after what they did last week. I don't care who's on the other side. So Pitt, give me Pitt. Okay, lastly, maybe the most high-profile game, very intriguing, USC, that's Southern Cal, at Stanford. Stanford favored by 3.5. I don't know what to think about USC. They were losing to UNLV last week for a large part of the first half. They wound up blowing them out in the second half. They have a ton of talent on that roster. I just don't know what to think about the coaching situation out there. I don't believe in in Helton. I said that last year, and they they had a nice season. I I just something about him screams like he's not actually that good. Uh, I also don't know what to think about Stanford this year either, and that's why I think this game is intriguing. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take Stanford here. You really labored over that, and I really don't know. USC has significantly more talent on that roster, but it's a lot of turnover, and I think I think that Stanford. Well-coached team. This is a good year for them to beat USC. I think catch them right now uh, before the talent becomes more mature. I'm going to go Stanford, but as you can tell, I I don't have a good feeling on this one either way. It's a weird Stanford team. They're maybe a little more explosive on offense. Since they made the quarterback change last year, they moved the ball more effectively, but maybe not as stingy on defense as they normally are, but I'm still going to take Stanford. All right. Last but not least, we're going to do our college football playoff picks. Alan, I will let you go first. Oh, well, thank you. That's so nice of you. I know. Very, very gentlemanlike of myself. Who do you have? Okay, it feels, I don't know, obvious or too safe. What's the word? Boring. But I can't not pick Alabama and Clemson. Clemson seems like they have just the clearest, smoothest past path to the playoff. I mean, assuming they get by A&M this weekend, who else in the ACC is going to threaten them? Even at a one loss, they're probably in. Alabama, they're going to, they play in the rough SEC West, as we've said. But until they prove otherwise, I guess I have to pick them to make it every year. Okay, I'm also going to take Auburn. Now, I will admit, I'm a sucker for Auburn. I'm enamored with their talent at QB and along the defensive line. 
They've got a brutal schedule. But, you know, Florida used to make the championship game despite playing a brutal schedule. I think that'll play well with the committee. And lastly, I'm going to take Oklahoma. Oklahoma, I was worried about them replacing Baker, and maybe this still will come to the front, but Kyler Murray looked legit last week. So they're my pick for now. Those are good, good picks. I like three of those picks a lot. Okay. And I'm going to trade one out. Okay. For for just every time I say this, I feel like I'm saying a cuss word or a dirty word, but I'm going to sub out Auburn, and I'm going to put in Georgia. Whoa. I know. Which, which means, for those of you astute listeners at home, that essentially we have the same exact playoff. That we had That's last too year, boring. Which is lame AF, I know. But here's the deal. Those are the best teams in college football. And that's how it works. It's not it's not a socialist system, it's a meritocracy. And those are the best teams. And two SEC teams deserve to be in it. I think Georgia's schedule's favorable, but hard enough. I obviously believe in them. Of course I believe in Alabama. Clemson, I believe in maybe the least, although I think they're extremely good because their quarterback situation is unsettled. And then I think Oklahoma again favorable schedule. Who else? Who else from that division? TCU maybe, but right, not really. They're they're much better than everyone else is. I think Lincoln Riley is really good, and I think it shapes up pretty well. I think for you to find out who else you're going to insert in there if you don't take a second SEC team is really hard. Washington maybe, but they already are down a peg. If they'd won that Auburn game, I think we would have had to put Washington in there. Oh, 100%. Yeah, that, that was what you would look at because their schedule also favorable, but they still have to face the teams that always get them, like a USC, you know, the, the more talented, Oregon. bigger, stronger team uh, that tends to tip them up. I, I do think Washington's the obvious replacement, but again, when you go outside of them, you're taking a Big Ten team. Hard to pick one of those. Well, Ohio really State would be schedule. the one that would, you know, I guess move the needle, but who knows where they're at? And, you know, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, maybe they're wishing to be in Wisconsin, would be another team that will probably have a good enough resume and maybe slide through their schedule undefeated because they're in the weaker Big Ten division. But I'm not a believer in them right now. I don't know. They're going to have to prove it to me. Yeah, and I'm not either. And that's the question that gets asked when you discuss this. Is okay, but what if Georgia has one loss to Alabama in a close SEC title game? Do you put an undefeated Wisconsin in over a one-loss Georgia? narrowly losing to Alabama I don't think so I don't think the committee would do that because Wisconsin's schedule this year is, is extremely easy they dodge almost all of the best opponents in the Big Ten they're gonna play, have to play someone in the they'll title play game. someone in the title game but there's only one game now I don't know there's a lot of conjecture at this point in time it'd be easier to just take another conference team but I just don't think those teams are in the same caliber I don't think Washington is in the same breath as those four teams I mentioned and therefore I'm taking them the beauty of college football is so many things can change few injuries here and there, a few situations go wrong here and there. Uh, you know, maybe like you mentioned, Georgia's not as good as everyone thinks they are and they're going the wrong way uh, or they're going to at least have a flat year. That's all possible. It's going to be so much fun to unpack it. But I think it says something that you and I have seven of the same eight picks. And, and we love to pick like a trendy fun pick. It's just really hard to find one. We're sort of in this little mini age where like the power teams are very powerful and the middle teams just aren't quite that feisty. And I think it's going to go more or less as scripted. Yeah, if the Big 12 was a little tougher, I, I could see my way of like kind of Xing them out totally, which they've missed the playoffs several times, you know. But if Oklahoma's going to roll, I don't think anyone, I don't see anyone getting in their way. So yeah, maybe it's not the most exciting, but college football usually promises chaos above all else. So probably won't be a repeat. Or even what I said, you know, Auburn almost made it in last year. If they make it, if they win the SEC title game, it would have been the same. So 
If you like chaos, you probably won't be disappointed. Okay, let's close out the show. James, good to be back in Studio C here with you. Guys, we're looking forward to a great season. Thanks again for supporting the show. Like James said, hit us up with your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And hopefully we'll see you after a big win in the swamp. Go Gators. When you're well-dressed, people say, Nice suit. When you're best dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separate, sport coats, and dress pants from Collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send him my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.